All right, another episode, Reinforced Running Podcast, coming directly at you. John Williams, what's up, dude? Uh, just living the dream, buddy. That dream, that dream living. This is another episode where we had a John. This is the second John. Let's keep it rolling. And I mentioned to you before. Everybody that, loves a John. Is that true? <laughs> is this fact? Maybe, maybe it's somewhere along the lines. But um, I also mentioned that every guest that we've had it has been older than than me so far, and this falls in line with that as well. Come on, man! This is this you is find we're some not young bucks. No young bucks. You guys aren't not, interesting not anymore. Even, you guys not even that you guys young. Just like you're, just you think everybody the world owes you something. You know, us older guys we <laughs> we appreciate a little more. Maybe that's what what's going on. We're just out here doing our millennial lives, just <laughs> you know, being minimalist, doing our thing. Um, so today we had John Howell on, and, and John is a professional chiropractor, a partial owner in a business out in Oregon, right in uh, the Portland area, and he's super smart and, and a total stud, man. Like He was really impressive when it comes to his running, and his knowledge was just like, blew my mind for some of these things. Totally, like totally humble, still running great, a um, lot of great insight. Um, his practice is really, sounds really cool, and just... The idea of of, of um, the integrated medicine that they're practicing there, and uh, and his insight into um, into uh, um, altitude training was just was tremendous, for sure. And that's something that we we dove almost into immediately. We started talking about some uh, blood markers that uh, John looks at in his practice, and, and something that like the everyday runner should go and, and kind of get checked out to see make sure that they're. Uh, they're not going to lose out on their performance for things like iron deficiency and, and really kind of making sure that all these different blood levels are kind of in order to to make sure that you're training properly and that um, you're staying healthy, which I, I've never really thought put too much thought into, and I didn't really know that was like something that was offered. Um, so it was really cool to hear about that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's it certainly opened my eyes and, and just like not taking some of these things for granted and, and just, just – uh just something as simple as a blood test can just have so much insight into like just some of the things that you're, especially if you're not, things just don't feel normal. And, uh, I think everyone's going to really enjoy the, uh, the insight he had on that for sure. hundred percent. So that we, we talk about that. We talk about altitude training. Um, we talk a little bit of, uh, of longevity as uh, John's in his mid-40s and is uh, crushing it as a master's athlete and is crushing it at the elite level at, in OCR. And, and he's had um, several top 20 finishes at uh, Spartan Race World Championship over the past couple of years. So uh, he's the real deal, man. So I think you guys will get a lot out of this. Um, so I'm hoping you enjoy. All right, we are on. John Howell, what's up? Doing good. How you doing? Doing great, man. So this is the second John we've had in a row, um, and it's confusing because of John Williams. So when, I, like, so just to make it clear, let's just address John by his proper name, the John Hamilton Williams the third. Yeah, I, is, I, is that when you said John, I almost answered there for a second. I had to <laughs> it would have been, stop it myself. Been it, would, it would have been appropriate. <laughs> so I'm just gonna talk about your full long name each and every time but how, how are you john hamilton williams the everything is today? great my friend probably not as good as you but you know that's life i mean you guys gotta try it's just every day just aspirations 
Um, so, John, man, I appreciate you, you hopping on today. You're out in Portland, correct? You, li- yep. you live in Oregon? Portland, Oregon. Nice. Is there a better place to, like, live and train? Like, the combination of both things? Or is you know, it just, like... Portland is great, just because, uh, I mean, the only thing you really have to deal with is a little bit of rain here and there. A little um, bit? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of rain. But it's nothing <laughs> gray, that really stops spot, you. I mean, guys. you don't have to worry about snow. It, I mean, a 93 day is really hot, so we get a couple 90s, you know. But other than that, the, the weather is pretty good, and... Man, Forest Park is amazing, which is right in the middle of town. It's just huge, huge uh, park with trails. I mean, hundreds of miles of trails in that park, which is awesome. Yeah. I think the pilots seem to be, like, producing out there, and everyone that seems to be training out there seems to be doing really well. Yeah. I'm sure that yeah, has I mean, a lot to do with it. Yeah, a lot of talent, and it's just a cool place to live. It's not too big. Uh yeah, and then with the Bowerman Track Club, those guys, I mean, they're bringing in a lot of talented athletes and putting them together and, and producing some great results. So are those people living right in the city as well, like the, the, the pro athletes, or are they kind of on the outskirts, or do they want to be near Forest Park? No, you know, actually, I don't think they run in Forest Park that much. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, I, I don't think uh, a lot of the coaches like them running on trails, actually yeah i guess because yeah worried about like uh rolling ankle. ankles and stuff so like they're that. pretty so, aggressive trails like they're not just like bridled path they're there not a lot of them bad, are but yeah yeah i mean they're, they're not that crazy but you'll see most of them on the nike campus doing laps that's what they do we got uh there's a mile and a half uh perfect groomed trail on campus every quarter mile mark and then they got what they called Renato Field, which is probably like 600, 800 meter grass loop. And then they got a wood chip trail around the outside. So you'll see a ton of them doing a lot of their easy stuff just on the loops around Nike. Mm. Um, John Hamilton Williams, have you been to Portland? So I, I rolled through there on my way to, to Eugene, actually. <laughs> Um, for like for going to just, trials or something? Yeah, like wine country. No, no, I was actually just I'd never been to Eugene um and uh just was was just cruising. We started in in Seattle, cruised down, um stayed in Portland for a couple of days, did like wine country Willamette, I guess they call it, the wine country there mm. and then went down to Eugene. Actually, one of my favorite places and was actually Bend, but um they're all of, like I think Oregon is probably one of the. I'm not just saying this because you live there. Is like one of the most underrated places that I have ever been because it was just like, you know, you just don't hear like Mount Hood and just everything about it was great. So, how about yeah, you, Rich? Central Oregon's awesome too. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, I spent some time there with uh, the cavalcade. I, I was on. Um, That's right. The cavalcade <laughs> of curiosity. I, yeah. I worked this job for Brooks, the running shoe company, where I would travel from like town to town and set up essentially with the rock and roll races, and we'd set up like this big display. Um, so we spent time in Portland for the rock and roll Portland. I was like there for like two and a half, three weeks or so, uh, but I was like up, up out by the airport, so not a very cool part of town. Like was that the yeah. northwest, the north, northeast, northeast? The I think airport, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but. John Williams, the, the, the forest park he's talking about, it's like if there was the Wissahickon Park in Philadelphia was like where Rittenhouse is. Like if yeah. it was a, a ridiculous single track trails like directly in the middle of the city, it's the coolest thing. I rolled through there too quickly, like, and I'm kind of pissed because I wanted to get to the track, you know, like at Eugene. And 
Um, oh, you didn't and, see? The, you didn't see? You didn't see? Oh, what you? Oh, you? Yeah, like I was like, yeah, I wanted you know, and, and, and Pre's trail and all that stuff. But like when I got there, I was kind of like, this is kind of. Yeah, it was kind of unimpressive, and then I heard that I heard that later that like, wow, you should have spent some more time in Portland. But I had yeah, some pretty good donuts, and um, I hang out with a bunch of hipsters. That was kind of fun. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. we keep Portland weird. <laughs> um, well, cool. So we've established that you're in Oregon. That we've done that so far. So what? Uh, so what are you doing out there? Um, tell us a little bit about just yourself. Give us an overview on you know who you are, your profession, who you are as an athlete, and kind of what your background is. <sighs> Uh, so yeah, I'm a chiropractic physician. Um, I'm part owner. So my practice is an integrated medical practice. So we have uh, primary care. We got nurse practitioners, doctors, uh, naturopaths, mental health, and acupuncture, chiropractic all under one roof. So I manage a lot of that. And then I treat there as a chiropractor too. And I tend to see a lot of athletes. I tend to see a lot of runners because that's what I specialize in. That's the reason I got into chiropractic in the beginning was to, you know, because the experiences I had working with them and then me wanting to treat runners also. Um, I'm originally from Reno, Nevada, which is right there next to Squaw. Yeah. So, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I started running. Let, let me know if it gets too loud here. I got family. That's <laughs> perfect. You know, I love it. I love it. <laughs> you know how it is. What's, what, uh, what's the dog's name? Was that Rich? <laughs> the rich, rich is hungry. <laughs> Give him a bone. Little Abby. Little Abby. Uh, Abby. Yeah, did you want me to get in the background about running and then how I ended up in Portland? or? Yeah, for sure. And, and you mentioned it kind of leading into that, – that was something I was curious about because I know you, you were at Northern Arizona to run uh, collegiately and then now where you are working in the, in the chiropractic, I just wanted to, to kind of connect those dots and kind of how you ended up in your field. Yeah, no, definitely. So my, originally in, I've always been a pretty serious athlete and through high school I actually started off with roller speed skating. And this is back in the early 90s. It was pretty – pretty serious we would train we did a lot of cycling did a lot of uh slide board training uh weight stuff like that and about my senior year of high school i realized hey i'm not going to get a scholarship with roller speed skating so then i transitioned into running so uh uh, sorry to interrupt but (laughs) that is the most unbelievable story i've ever heard that just get this just (laughs) i need it i need this was late 80s early 90s let's back up just for (laughs) a second I don't know if this is strictly a Nevada thing. Uh, we didn't have that in Pennsylvania. I'm guessing in New Jersey you didn't did. have it either. We traveled nationally. I actually raced <laughs> oh, you, nationals oh, really? in Pennsylvania one year no. in Lincoln and Florida. Uh, and this is the, the the roller skates indoors. And we actually went to – I'd go to the Olympic Training Center uh, every year for like a couple weeks. And we would train there on the velodrome. What? Wow. Yeah. Inside the velodrome, they have a 200-meter bank track. So we would train on that too. Uh, and then was it like ice skating that you see in the Olympics? It's the roller, roller skates. skates. It's, it's the roller skates. Yeah, I mean, and but like would, same, you, would you use the same of... track as the cycles? Cyclists? Is no, it the it was, same it bank? Was just on the inside. So there's a 200 meter okay. track on the inside that, that okay. was uh, banked. It would be like an indoor 200 meter track. Yeah, so yeah. it was okay. real similar, something like that. Um, and then my senior year, inlining started coming out. And inlines oh, no. were crushing all the roller skaters. So you either had to transition to inlines. They were just faster and they gripped a lot better. So you either had to transition to inlines or you got crushed. So uh, I ended up saying, hey, I'm going to try you know, track and field and running and, and see how that goes. 
And uh, a lot of the people that I usually actually race in roller skating, I ended up seeing them in the Olympics four years later because they transitioned to inlines and then they transitioned to ice skating. So ah. they became really good ice skaters, especially long track. And you'll see that a lot with the inliners kind of transitioning into the to the ice skating. So, that makes uh, sense. So I jumped into running, and I was actually pretty good in the beginning. For the state of Nevada, I ran a 940 for two miles, like a 905 3K. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, I think that was state leading time, like first, second in the state, which was good. You know, I'd go to California and just get my freaking doors blown off. Yeah, you'd be like number 300 or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but. yeah. But uh, so I didn't get a scholarship right away out of, out of high school. I uh, didn't know really what to do. So I took a year off, kind of worked and tried to figure things out. And I just ended up walking on the University of Nevada, Reno. Had a men's mm. track and cross country program. And there's Division One school. In my first year there, I ended up uh, running really well and getting um, being the uh, athlete of the year for cross country. Uh, ran like 25 flat for an 8K cross course and got fifth at the Big West Championships and uh, ended up getting a scholarship there halfway through the year because I think a, uh, a track athlete flunked out and they gave me his scholarship. <laughs> so I got lucky there. And at the end of that track season – and I – you know, I ran 940 in high school. That year, I ran a 906 steeple at the University of Nevada as a freshman. And then, right after conference championships, they let us know that they were cutting the men's track program. Oh, geez. So I was going to say, I don't think I've heard of that program. And I... Yeah, so the state of Nevada has no men's track and field. There is no, okay. there is no junior college programs. There is no men's college programs. So I had a, the choice of either keeping my scholarship wow. for the next three years or transferring out to another or just going to another school and i was looking at a couple different programs and i ended up picking a a small school in au a division one small school like not no one really knew that much about uh northern arizona university but seven thousand feet altitude amazing um amazing trails and man it's only like a 12 hour drive from where i live so so i went to the west coast that's nothing that's like a three hour drive east coast yeah (laughs) yeah so I went to school there, and we just had – I had the perfect group of guys. All of us are a bunch of sophomores kind of coming in together, and we all meshed. We ran great. We got fourth at NCAAs that year in cross country. Uh, and then the next year, we got second at NCAAs. Um, and four years out of school, so it was uh, 96, actually – I started running really awesome. I ran 844 steeple that or 840 steeple that year and qualified for uh, NCAA's and actually made it to the Olympic trials in 1996. Nice. Uh, four years out of high school, which was awesome. So um, and then the next and year, was like, and you started running as like a 17 year old essentially. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. That's when I was serious, like 17, yeah. 18, and then uh, made it to the trials when I was 22. And, and it was an amazing experience because it was in 1996. It was in Atlanta in the Olympic Stadium. Right. It was kind of a uh, a prep for them for the Olympics. So you'd go warm up on a track somewhere. A shuttle bus would come pick you up, put you in it, and then they would drive you, there, and then they would drive you to the stadium, and then you would race. <laughs> on so the track, it was wasn't that and that's Mike, Michael Johnson's here, right? Was that? Yeah, the, yeah. The, Michael Johnson was there. Uh, it was amazing because. They didn't have the Olympic Village set up yet, so they put us everyone into one hotel, and they gave you meal tickets for the day, so everybody was in the same place. 
and you go down and you'd have lunch and it was like I'd be sitting next to Henry Mars or Carl Lewis, Bob Kennedy, Todd Williams. <laughs> you know, it was amazing these guys awesome. that were around you. Yeah, and I remember watching Carl Lewis and Mike Powell duke it out in the long jump there. Uh, Car- yeah, and uh, that was Carl Lewis was just about on his way out. And Michael Johnson was, was tearing it up and Bob Williams and Todd uh, – or uh, Bob Kennedy and Todd Williams were tearing it up in the distance stuff. So it was pretty amazing. Uh, and then I had one more year of eligibility after that and I ended up getting um, – ran NCAAs and made it to – NCAA final that year and got fifth place there and nice. yeah had a great collegiate career I think uh, four time All American for Division One um, and our team got second place in NCAA cross and then um, ran who won for, that year Arkansas beat us uh, that year mm. yeah because second second at cross Nats is really legit. That's yeah, and a, we didn't like, have a huge program. I mean, we really only had we had kind of like the skeleton crew. I mean, our sixth and seventh guy. I think our seventh guy was only like a twenty-six, you know, low eight k guy. So we had four really good runners, and our fifth guy hung on, and our sixth guy just got to ride the coattails. You know, scary way to yeah, scary up. way to what, put a team together. What year that was that? that? What year was that in cross country? So that'd be. Uh, 96, 97, I think it was my last two years. It was okay. probably 95, 96. I think we went fourth, and then we got second. And then uh, a lot of us got sick my senior year, and we didn't we didn't run as well that year. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was like Seneca Lassiter. Was he like was he a part of that? Seneca Lassiter was there at Arkansas. Yeah, he was young uh, though, right? Like he, oh no, he was young. I yeah, think he was he, one he was of those on years. Side. He was one of the first, yeah, that, my senior year, he may have won the 1500 and then came back and won the U.S. National. Yeah, he was like one of the, he, yeah, he was one of, I know he was, I just couldn't quite put together the, the, the timing of it, but I knew it was in that era. Yeah, and Bunsen Arkansas was, a big was always Arkansas good. guy. Uh, and then they had a freshman there uh, from California. I forget his name, but the kid went like 1330 his freshman year. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really good. But That's yeah, awesome. the year, and I, yeah, I got All-American and indoors also, and that was the year Adam Goucher won his first title. Yeah, um, that's right. Adam Goucher won that race. Uh, my steeplechase year, Pascal Dobert is the one that won that. And he's uh, he's a strength coach for the Bowerman Track Club now. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so I ran, for, I ran pro for a couple of years uh, for Adidas. And then um, and I was with my wife the whole time, and we started a family, and... I decided, like, you know, I, you know, the running stuff wasn't cutting it. it was, it's tough. With, right, unless yeah. you're making teams, you're not making any money. So it was kind of the point, like, okay, uh, I had an exercise science degree at Northern Arizona. So then I decided, and I, you know, you get injured all the time with training. And I had a chiropractor that was helping me out. Back in those days, you kind of always had to get a referral to see a physical therapist. And it was kind of a pain to talk to your medical doctor and get that referral. So with the chiropractic, you didn't need that. You go straight to a chiropractor and get treated and get back out there and get running again and i really like that so that's where i decided to kind of go to the chiropractic college and i ended up going to chiropractic college here in portland loved the culture here and decided to kind of stay here and uh and start practice here and see how that went very cool like that's that's an awesome story and like it makes sense to go that chiropractic route because it seems like it's uh like you said it's a quicker access and you can really kind of mark to the people you want to be like I'm here to help runners, so 
you guys can come and, and see me. And, and the place that you're at now, it seems like it's like an all-in-one in, inclusive thing. Like, can people come into where you work and get a referral to go to any specific, like a PT or a chiro or a homeopath? Or how does that work with your current practice? Yeah, I mean, definitely anyone can just come in and just see chiro or PT or whatever. But the great thing also is if I need more, uh, I can talk to my primary care if I need... You know, if I need help get MRIs, usually mm. we can refer for MRI. But if it's like a, a private insurance that won't allow you or something like that, I can ask the primary care to help me out. Or even, you know, if we need pain meds or anti-inflammatory meds or anything like that, um, we all work together. We're all like, you know, always collaborating and talking about different things. And that's where a lot of – I having that access has helped me a lot um, with looking at blood work for athletes too. So having the primary care there – and having the access to, we have a reduced fee schedule for labs. They will charge the clinic a much lesser price than they will charge patients. So I have had a lot of people come in and come to me for lab draws when they just want a CBC and a ferritin to check iron levels and stuff like that. So I, I've had a ton of people work, you know, come to me for that through the clinic. So that's been one uh, great way to access some of the other resources around the clinic. It- and is that typically a barrier for people to get blood work done like that? Like if they, they want to check their iron, like if they go to their primary care doctor, is that like a hard test to get? Like how do you, how would the it, normal person kind of? pretty easy to get, but a lot of doctors, especially if they're not sports minded, they, they don't really care about your ferritin or they don't look at like, oh, your ferritin's at this level, you're normal. Well, normal's not normal for an athlete, you know, there's different levels for different things, you know vitamin d and ferritin and all these other things you want to look at but um i i think primary care is really good you know the primary care doctors are really good at just focusing on that primary care and having mm-hmm. those those boundaries but when you start getting to athletes and and explaining things to them and how to what to really look for on the blood work i think that's what a lot of them come to me for and that's where a lot of them end up getting referred to me you know, so just people just talk within the community and it's really easy for them to just come in and just pay like a flat $35 cash price, get the blood work and get out instead of having to go in, make an appointment with the doctor, pay your copay, pay whatever else the doctor wants you to pay and then move on from there. So that's where yeah, they, they just get- come in. Yeah. Just do a flat fee and get in and out and, and they'll test it like every couple, you know, you've got people that test every two, three months just to make sure their ferritin levels and everything's doing well. Um, you mentioned that ferritin a couple of times um, when it comes to the blood work. Uh, I'm not really sure what that means. Um, so, like, t- what's what is uh, like? What are some of the things you are checking for for the blood work when it comes to? Um, and I'm I'm guessing you're talking about endurance athletes in particular. Um, is that fair, or are you talking about just like general pop when you're? This is general population too, but definitely it will affect endurance athletes more. This especially females are very susceptible to having um, anemia or ferritin lo- low ferritin levels. So, so to keep it real basic is uh, your red blood cells in your body carry oxygen to the muscles. Uh, and there's you got when you do a CBC, it's called a complete blood count. The things that we really look at is the red blood cell number and your hematocrit number. And your hematocrit is just a percentage of, you know, like your red blood cells and plasma levels. And this is where you'll hear a lot with like um, when they talk about hematocrit levels, you're talking about 
you have hear about blood passports and Lance Armstrong and, and those kind of things where they would try and bump up their hematocrit levels to really high levels to get more that um, would get more oxygen to the muscles. So in a Tour de France, you know, the, the average range is probably up to like 46 for a male. But in a Tour de France, when Lance was there, they'd say, oh, 50 is legal now. You know, if, if you go above 50, you're going to get in trouble. If you're not above 50, you're okay. So everyone started going 49.9. So they would add blood into their body. <laughs> they could so they figure could out that, where that was. <laughs> yeah, to that 49.9. So, um, but that hematocrit's really important because that helps carry, you know, the oxygen um, to the muscles. The... And there's a lot of iron in there. The hemoglobin has iron, which helps bind that oxygen. So you have your hematocrit number. Now your ferritin number is your storage of iron unit in the body. So that's another thing okay. that we look at. So if that storage of iron goes low, then your body can't make red blood cells. That's when you can go anemic. So gotcha. you want to watch that storage unit and you want to you know see that hematocrit so i tell people if you're just checking your hematocrit and not your ferritin it's kind of like writing checks and not knowing what's in your bank account you mm. kind of want to know what's there because if that starts getting low yeah you may start going anemic and that's where a lot of athletes have trouble um they use up a lot of their ferritin running hard breaks down red blood cells uh and a lot of times, you know, you get vegetarians not eating enough meat, those kind of things. You're just not getting that ferritin storage there. So when that, so and ferritin, they, you know, and there's studies that have shown that when ferritin gets low, it can affect performance. But especially if it gets low, it can start affecting that uh, red blood cells, which will definitely affect performance. So a lot of athletes will come in and make sure their ferritins are staying at a good level, and then check the hematocrit. And the hematocrit is a very individual number. It's not, you know, so. That number may change from person to person, but I always tell people it's kind of your individual number. Like I know I'm like a 42 or 43 guy. So if I go like to 40, then I know I'm way low. Or if I, you know, um, but it, it really, you can't say it's the same for everyone. Ferritin, can, anyone can get a nice good number there if you build up and you supplement. But that hematocrit is a very individual number. And that's where I get a lot of athletes will come to me, especially these pro athletes. They check their hematocrit levels and then they'll go to altitude for you know six to eight weeks and they come back and check their numbers again because altitude can affect everyone a little bit differently. But the goal is to bump up that hematocrit and the red blood cell numbers. So I've seen a lot of times, you know, a 2% change, a 43%, you know, hematocrit going up to like a 45%. And that little bit of a difference at, uh, at that level can really help athletes out. So that's where you see a lot of the athletes will go to these, you know, high altitude stands. They'll go there and train for six to eight weeks and then drop back down and race down at sea level. So that's always been a fascination of mine. I had these two friends of mine who are actually really good runners and they actually used them for tests because they took one, they had them train it at, at sea level at, at a high altitude. And then they had the other one train at sea level and they gave him some sort of performance enhancement. And then they would like kind of, they would have them race and then we kind of compare their blood levels and all this stuff. And I never really, I don't know a lot about how it all works, but it was, they were they were identical twins, so that's why they actually wanted. I guess they they picked them. Um, but I was always fascinated with the idea of all right, the excuse that oh it's that because I'm training in altitude, right? So like there's all these different things that can be going on in your blood 
that happen when you're training at altitude. Um, like in your opinion or like, or for our listeners, like where is, like, how are they drawing those lines? Because it's interesting to me that you just said, Hey, it's 49.9. And like, as an athlete who competed and, and sees this, like, what are some of the things that are like going on behind the scenes that are like kind of regulating this? And, and what is, what is like, without getting too technical, like what is, what are we really looking at when we look at those things? Well, I think they have different levels, different things that they can look at. You know, if you're going to altitude, your EPO just naturally gets bumped up and increases your hematocrit levels. If you don't do it naturally, if you're doing it through drugs, they can a lot of times, and, and they'll say like the drug testing is pretty much an IQ test because if you know how to dosage right, you should be able to get away with it. And you don't, how many times Lance and a lot of these athletes got tested, they never really got busted because they know if they dose a certain amount that that, you know, that will be out of their system within 12 hours. So, and where WADA can come in whenever they want and test them, they know that they have that 12 hour window to get that out of their system before they get tested. So they're really careful about how they were doing it. So that's where it's really tough to catch these athletes that are doping uh, and you may never do it. Uh, But the altitude is one way to kind of legally get that hematocrit up. And it's kind of hard to say, you know, uh, there's a lot that goes into altitude training. You know, uh, we have our Bowerman Track Club here. They'll take, you know, five, ten athletes, amazing athletes. You take them out of Portland. You get them away from everyone. You take them up to altitude. And now all they can do is run and sleep and train. And, you know, so it's a lot more than just the altitude. I think it's taking them away to these training camps. Uh, I don't know if you just saw what happened two nights ago with the Bowerman Track Club, but they went to the Park City, Utah, and they trained there for about eight weeks, maybe, yeah, about eight weeks, and then they came down to Portland for a day because, you know, a lot of these guys qualify for Doha World Championships, and then they're going to go back to uh, St. Moritz or go to Switzerland and train altitude again. So they came down for a day, and they did a time trial on the Nike track. And they ran three of the top ten, all you know, fastest American times ever in a time trial, just coming down from. Altitude. Yeah, we were just talking about we that. Talking it was about like that, yeah. Centro yeah. and that guy from guy from Portland, right? Like the, the guy from the, the Portland uh, Portland University, right? Yeah, University of Portland. He's What's like his uh, name? he's two years out. Woody yeah. Kincaid. Yeah, Kincaid. Uh, that's it. And then Lopez Lamont from NAU. You got to yeah. represent, right? NAU guy. So and they just ran amazing. They got. They got the Olympic standard, so they don't have to worry about that next year going into the trials. Uh, but, you know, that was just a great way for them to kind of test the altitude and see how it goes. Now, the thing with altitude is living at altitude is what's going to make your hematocrit up go higher. But the training at altitude sometimes isn't the best. It's hard to train at altitude. It's hard to get that recovery, and it's hard to get those fast workouts in. So this is a big thing they've learned over the last 15, 20 years. We didn't do this very well when I was in school, but live at a high altitude and then train at sea level, at least the fast work at the sea level. Cause if you want to run 13 flat, you got to do some fast work. Yeah. I think the right. guys, the guys out on Monmouth lakes with like Terrence Mahan and what was V Hill before Terrence, they used to yeah. train, they used to live high. And then I think they had, a, they would drive down. Um, I don't know how the train was set up, but Terrence used to tell me about how they used to do that to go. And then they would do their track workouts at sea level. 
Um, and then it also re- reminded me of like how guys like Goucher, you take him, who was at sea level doing these crazy tempo workouts at altitude. <laughs> like I just, just yeah. don't even know how the guy can walk to these days. But yeah, it's pretty interesting how that has kind of like came came together. It makes a lot of sense. And and so John, when like say when Lopez, Lopez and, and Centro come down from Park City after eight weeks of training at altitude and then hit this 13 flat 5k. Are they testing their blood when they come down just so they can kind of then have an ideal measure of where like their performance could potentially be based on their blood when they ran that time? You know, it, it would be a good idea to do that. I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen them. Uh, I don't think they did at all. Um, which I, you know, I, I, I see two reasons you wouldn't want to do it now. Or, you know, I, I'd say when you PR like that, and this is what I tell everyone, because I get a lot of people coming to me when they have issues. Uh-huh. And I wish they would come, I wish they, you know, I wish you would get your blood tested when you're running great. Mm. So then we have these numbers, we know exactly what you look like, because it's kind of like the snapshot in time. I can look, I can see, like, oh, here's your hematic rate, here's your hemoglobin, here's all this stuff. This is what things look like when you're running awesome. But a lot of people come to me when they feel like crap and I, their numbers can be the same but and I can be like, wrong? yeah, low, low, uh, hematocrit and overtraining mimic each other. It's really hard to differentiate the two. It's like, you just feel like crap and you feel like someone flips a switch on you. You just, you blow up in workouts. So it's hard to say. And if I don't have their previous results, I don't know what their hematocrit should look like. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? So that's the problem. It's like someone could come in I could be like, your hematocrit looks fine, but maybe it's not fine for them. Maybe they were 2% or 3% higher last year, but I have no idea yeah. to know that. So There's no that's baseline. the problem. So it's, yeah, so that's where we like to get a baseline. I like people to get tested every now and then. So kids so out there, the, the yeah. moral of the story is get your hematocrit early <laughs> and often. Get it tested. Yeah, when you're feeling great, get get these numbers, no, but, and then that way yeah, you makes can relate a lot of sense. back to them when you're not feeling good. I mean, it's the same thing with like a gait analysis, right? It's like, what's the point of doing a gait analysis on someone when they are coming off of an injury? Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, I'd, I'd love to see people what they look like when they're, you know, when they're healthy and they're running great, and then you know, if you had that videotape, then you can kind of say, okay, this is what you look like then, and this is what you look like now. At least you got something to relate it to. So aside from um, overtraining and uh, training at altitude and doping, um, what are some things that would change the hematocrit? Like say for the worst, like if you come in and you're like two points lower, like say I come in and I'm normally like you like 42, I come in and I'm 40, like, but nothing has changed really. Like what are some other factors that could play into this? Is it strictly training? I think a big training? thing is definitely, yeah, training – Training can definitely put that um, – it, it can stress the body into breaking down red more blood cells. So that could be one thing. Uh, not Nutrition could be another thing. Not getting – you know, if that ferritin goes low, when that ferritin goes low and your body can't make red blood cells, then hematocrit can go low. And then you got other issues that can really – you know, if you're bleeding more than you should for some reason, internally, you know, your gut, you know, different things like that. Mm. Uh, if there's – issues that need to be really checked out so those are things also that that can definitely be a problem um yeah but i'd say probably the biggest thing is usually diet and supplements are the two things that uh have have caused that issue for people to go anemic so you're saying diet like not eating enough 
iron rich foods like if someone goes vegan yeah for or instance. they should yeah and some people just need to supplement and the and the diet's not going to help them too much they just need to take a ferritin supplement or maybe they're not getting enough complex b's or b12 uh the complex b's really help build the red blood cells and sometimes they could get like a macrocytic anemia or the size of the cells not right so the complex b's and ferritin usually go hand in hand on making nice healthy red blood cells does age um, affect these levels uh, I don't think age, no, probably not too much. Um, age shouldn't be too much of an issue unless you got some kind of medical conditions. But yeah, yeah, I wouldn't worry about the age too much. And and so would it, would it does it remain constant? Like if you're healthy and say like I didn't work didn't run for like a year, but everything else was constant, would it stay the same or would just like straight up training at sea level change these levels very much? Things will change a little bit here and there uh, with the hematocrit, but um, usually when some when a female has ferritin issues, they have trouble keeping it up or keeping it at, at a comfortable level. It's usually it's almost always like that. And I mean, we you could start with diet, you could try those things, but usually they'll probably need to be on like a ferritin supplement or something uh, long term to kind of uh, make sure that ferritin's at a good level to build those red blood cells. Gotcha. Um, cool. This is also fascinating because these, these type of levels are things that are just like really can help you have a big picture idea of how things are, are going with yeah. your training and how you're going to perform. And um, one of the biggest issues I get, and it, this word's becoming way more popular now, is high school females a ton tend to be anemic or low mm, in ferritin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no one ever catches it because they're like, you know, they just think running sucks, right? There's <laughs> just like, this <laughs> running just, just hurts from five <laughs> minutes on. This is just how it feels. So, uh, yeah. so a lot of times I think when they start, you know, other, other moms start talking to, you know, the other moms and they start working it out, like, well, you should go get this checked out. And they'll just come in and get a general screening and realize, oh, your ferritin's at eight, which is like really minimal. That can definitely be affecting performance and cause an anemia and all sorts of issues. So then we'll try and get that up. We'll get that ferritin up. We'll we'll monitor that hematocrit and then see where that hematocrit goes and then hopefully just watch the athlete uh, just get better and better. Mm. And um, I'm curious as, as far as like just to go back to the outside, like you have obviously some experience when looking at these, these blood panels and you've trained at altitude yourself. Um, and you know, in the sport, what we're doing right now, the obstacle course racing, you know, a lot of these races are at, at altitude. So, and we don't all live there. So some, some of the people I've been talking to, they've been kind of getting into the, these altitude tents to sleep in. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any reference for how well those work? Like, do you, have you had people, have you had taken a look at those measures to see if like objectively they're working for people? Yeah. I mean, living at altitude will help, um, the more time you spend at altitude, the more your body kind of freaks out, not getting that oxygen. So it's going to make more red blood cells to make mm-hmm. up for it. So living at altitude just makes you a better athlete because it's going to bump up your hematocrit. And that's really individual for everyone on how much it really does help you. So the altitude tents are great and living at altitude is great. Those things are good. The tents aren't as effective as living at altitude because you're only in the tent maybe 12 hours out of the day. Mm-hmm. Right, so uh, they even had a house here in Oregon that was pressurized. The whole house was pressurized <laughs> to altitude. But um, that's some Nike money right there. Yeah, 
<laughs> but the big thing was, and this was that was the beginning of the organ project back in the day. Um, so living at altitude is just going to help you, whether it's going to help you at altitude and it's going to help you at sea level. It just helps you because you got more red blood cells. I think the training and running hard at altitude is what will help when you do run hard at altitude. That's something yeah. that, yeah, you've got to do those hard workouts. And I'm going to Squaw Valley here in a little bit too to race that world championships. And they have a, there's a gym in town that has a pressurized room and it was pressurized, it set up to 13,000 feet. So I went in there. Um, Just did burpees. <laughs> yeah, and, and we, we ran on a treadmill for 90 minutes in there. I was with Josh Fry and we just did an OCR workout in there, running 90 minutes on that. And you check your O2 saturation with a little finger thing and 98% when you're out of the room. And then when you're in there, the saturation went down to 88% as we're on the treadmill, you know? Jeez. So you're losing, and then it says when it gets below 79, you should probably get out of the room if it goes below <laughs> 79. But, but really your saturation goes down to 88%. And I've done that the last couple of years, and it's I think it's helped me in Tahoe because I think it helps your body from just not freaking out as much and being like, okay, we've been here. We don't have the oxygen. you got to be careful. And that's the biggest thing about altitude is once you go that anaerobic, once you start building that lactate, you don't come back so quick. So that's where you got to be really careful on how hard you go. And it's tough at, you know, like this Tahoe race because the first 30 minutes just sucks. You're going straight uphill. Straight There's uphill. almost no way of stopping that. So uh, so you just hope for the best. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but you just got to be careful on how how much you go into that pain cave, right? Because you yeah, don't come out. <laughs> that's uh, – and you, you've navigated Tahoe really well. In, I've done well. In the I, I, several years. And I don't know if it's because of some of the background I've had at altitude or if I'm just one of those guys that can run good at altitude. Uh, I run decent at altitude. I mean, it's definitely a disadvantage me racing somebody that trains up there. Um, but I've had guys on our team back in the day in AU, you would get conversions for different events at altitude, right? So mm-hmm. our mile conversion was eight and a half seconds when we ran in Flagstaff. And eight it was and like a half? 20 seconds, yeah. So it was like 20 seconds for the 3K because you're 7,000 feet altitude. Oh, so, But I, I've had guys that can run amazing there and then couldn't make those conversions at sea level because they didn't have the wheels for that conversion, but they could run great at altitude. So uh, it's, so it's some very – people more apt to it. Yeah. I think it's really individual. Um, and I think I do okay because I think my saturation – I think my saturation was a little bit better than Josh Fry's. So seeing him in there, I think he was pushing like 87. I was like 89%. Um, maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. And does like your background, like, so you spent three and a half, four years in Flagstaff training, like that training at that time, that really doesn't have any benefit for train for now, right? Like that's not something that's going to carry over more than even just a couple of weeks. I don't or think will it, it, yeah. When you leave altitude, those benefits are gone within a couple weeks. Hmm. So that's where, and, and, Training at altitude, it could be a little tricky too. What I've noticed, training at altitude, you got to worry about how many days you're at sea level too. So I feel like your body goes through some changes. Like you'll see a lot of people, a lot of these athletes will train at altitude. They'll come down and race and they'll go right back to altitude. You don't stay down for like weeks on, on a time just because your body kind of freaks out a little bit for some reason. With that said, um, what, what happens like after like a few days from after being at altitude – because um, some of the questions I sometimes get are, hey, I, I, I'm going to race at altitude. How long should I be there? 
Yeah, I, I mean, ideally, like, there's, there's gonna be a really long possible. time, but like, yeah, yeah. But if yeah. they can, they only have like two or three days. Is it really? I mean, is yeah. It, so I, I, I would recommend you get in the day before and race. And I was just talking to the U of P coach the other day about this because they had to go up to BYU to race their conference championships. He's like, yeah, we waited till the night, you know, the night before the race to fly everyone in. <laughs> we fly them all in, and then we race the next day. And that's the way I would prefer it too. I'd say the day before you come in. You race the next day. You go three or four days, the altitude may start affecting you. Uh, I was surprised last year because you had uh, John Alvin and um, Woodsy both went up there for about a week, and they both seem to run really well still, So, especially Alvin, who doesn't seem to do as well at altitude. How much How much time? So that, that was kind of my understanding. It's either you spend a lot of time or very little time before your race to get there like where like and if you're there for like three or four days like that is kind of like the worst case scenario yeah because you go through some like a kind of a depletion phase first before you start to rebuild like how long like if if i was to come out and be like all right i'm going after tahoe this year i'm gonna rent a room for x amount of days like what would you say is appropriate i would say two weeks two full weeks yeah yeah i haven't dealt with that too much though i haven't had to to kind of figure that out very much at all but i haven't had a chance to even mess with that but I'll right say, exactly I'll who does <laughs> yeah <laughs> and your body will start to build up red blood cells in that two weeks yeah you'll start to see yeah. changes but i just don't think you will be as affected i think you'll kind of come down from that like the first week of training at altitude always sucked even when i went from five thousand feet in reno up to seven thousand feet and that first week was horrible Hmm. Uh, even going yeah. from like t- even to 5,000 yeah. feet like that's yeah. 5,000 if you're not used I to even it, thought I was out in awful. Salt Lake City and it's like 2,500 feet and it was like just from from 8 feet <laughs> where we were coming yeah. from and it, yeah, you, you could you could tell right away like it was not the same place I was surprised yeah. I didn't think 2,500 would be that much of a difference but yeah I, I start noticing about 3,000 feet when I get like bend that's when it starts to you're having trouble breathing and you definitely just feel like you're hitting the wall a little bit quicker. And, and is someplace like that is, would you say that would be like an ideal place to live would be at like 3000. So you can still kind of turn it over and still kind of hit these workouts hard and still kind of get I some think benefit. Where like or Boulder is, it, is, I think maybe ideal, like 5,000, like five, I think 5,000 okay. could be ideal. Uh, but you know what? These, these athletes are doing amazing now. I think, you know, NAU's definitely figured it out. BYU's figured it out. Bowerman Track Club has figured it out how to run fast at 7,000 feet. I mean, in a back in our day, we didn't we didn't have it figured out so well. We did really good in cross. We lacked some of the speed and track, but now I think they had five or six guys at 1340 or faster last year at NAU. So so to have that kind of speed, to be able to get that kind of speed at 7,000 feet altitude, they're they're doing fine. So even 7,000 feet, they're definitely getting aerobic benefit of being there, and they're getting hematocrit benefit, and now they've figured out how to get the speed benefit from that. I feel like down here in West Palm Beach, Florida, I get all the, the benefits of, or, the, the, or the, 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 the heat holding me back, but I don't get all the benefits of like this hematocrit stuff. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it. it's, it's well, just like brutal, and then there's not, <laughs> n- nothing building up, and then you have nothing to show for it. Well, there's some new studies coming out now, especially with like the sauna, doing a lot of sauna work and hot climates, that the dehydration that you get during these runs can definitely start bumping hematocrit levels also. So the dehydration mm. 
brings down the plasma levels within the body freaks out a little bit and tries to bump things up a little bit by adding hematocrit. So you'll see dehydration. That's where like they've had some big studies on sauna training lately, like, you know, three to four times a week at 30 minutes may help increase hematocrit levels also. So I'm just going to stop drinking drinking water and I'm going to be a beast. (laughs) Just no more water, just sauna training, just doing jumping jacks in the sauna. Yeah, that'll go. That'll go great at your local gym, John. I think you should do that. <laughs> um, Try it that's out. It. Yeah, that, that, that'll be. Um, that's that's interesting about that the altitude because that is something that is just um, you, you know like it's it's hard to come by. It's hard to like figure that out like if you don't have access to it. But um, it's good to know like there are there are some ways to kind of go about it. And then, but know, I I also see like these there's these teams like you take a team like Wisconsin or like these, some of these teams that don't train at altitude who still tend to compete right so i often wondered like how much of it is really coming into play like even stanford or um is is there is there like something that just there's is there a breaking point or just like is there's a level of talent or I think in your opinion a little bit yeah i think there's definitely talent and stanford yeah, gets be talent. the best talent and those athletes can compete with anyone but when you see what are the best athletes in the world doing, you know, what are all the yeah. top all I mean, when you go to the Olympic final, I bet in the world championship final, how many of those athletes are training at altitude in the five K and ten K? You know, and and you'll see a ton of them. When when Mo Farrell goes to Ethiopia and Kenya for six to eight weeks to get away from his family and focus at altitude, um, it, it shows you that, you know, that's where the best athletes are doing it. That's probably what works. And that's where, you know, they, they always – science seems to find – seems to follow what the best, best athletes end up doing. So when the best athletes are doing something and it works, science kind of follows them. Be like, okay, that's why it works. And and then they'll start, you know, talking about it and figuring out why does it work so well. So, so, you're, so John, just start crushing it down with the no water training and then the scientists will come. <laughs> no, and I – it's just always is fascinating to me because you, you always see these athletes like even like Des Linden who was up in Michigan, like knocking it out, winning Boston. And like it just so I always I always just try to justify. Well, I'm not training at at altitude in college, so but but neither are these guys and they're crushing it. So like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and she may live. You know, there. who cares what Wetmore is doing up in, in out in Boulder? Like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, college athletes don't have a choice. They're going to have to stay there, yeah, right? Yeah, And they're, they're going to have to do what they do. Um, but like someone like uh, those athletes, you wonder what do they do the six to eight weeks before the championship? That's what matters. Right. So they'll disappear for six to eight weeks and they'll go there. Like Jordan Hasse right now is up in Park City getting ready for Chicago. So um, that's where these athletes will go there. And, and it's kind of this mental stint where they can really just focus on their training, their recovery. They get away from everything. But then they're also at altitude also. So, hmm. Man, that'd be great. One day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, John, like you uh, obviously you have um, some good talent, the way you kind of came into running, and some really good and some really awesome success uh, along the ways. And, and you've continued that uh, for a while now. And it seems like you've been running at a high level for a long time so as far as like the longevity of things um just kind of shifting gears out of the altitude thing like what are some things that you credit to your like long-term success that you, you seem to be having uh i think you're just enjoying it is the first thing and you know making sure it's something you want to do you have the time to do 
uh, and just having that desire to train. So I have, uh, we have a great group here. I do a lot of running with, uh, we have a Bower- Bowerman Track Club is an amazing club. So we got a whole youth program from like age seven all the way up to our master runners. So we got a master's team and our team has won, I think, five national titles over the last six years for a club cross country. For club? No, no yeah. really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I saw you run five, that every year. Yeah. Yeah. Our top five guys probably average about 1530 for a 5k. So wow. and that's for like 40-plus type guys. So real good runners. We had a couple of guys run 70 and a half and 15 flat and 3130 in the 10k on the, on the track. So for, for master guys, for old guys, these guys are crushing it. And our team is good. Um, so just training with those guys has been awesome. And then for me, you know, finding obstacle course racing over the last couple of years, it's definitely switched the way I train and how I train. It's made things a little bit more fun, a little more exciting. So add a little more strength work, a little bit more trail running. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't mind training. I don't have to get the motivation. And I think that's where uh, that a lot of people lack that. They just get burned out. Yeah, and that's always number one, right? Like if you're if you're not if you're not gonna like doing it, you're not gonna do it. So having that passion, holding on to that, um, but also like staying healthy, right? Like, and I know this year you've yeah. kind of had a little some setbacks, right? This has but... been the worst year I've ever had. So yeah, uh, and you know I had a calf injury, uh, Jan- March, April, somewhere in there, and then I had another. I was trying some different stuff, trying to modify my training to come back, and had another injury, and then. And right now I'm struggling with something else, so hopefully I'll, I'll end up at you know running okay at Tahoe. But this is probably the roughest year I've had. Um, but and and that's where trying to stay healthy is probably the biggest thing. You know, if you can be consistent with your training, that's what's going to make you good, and that's what's going to make you know successful down down the road. So that's been the hardest part for a lot of athletes, and I haven't. The last couple of years, I've had a couple of issues with that. Um, but the great thing about obstacle course racing is you can modify things a little bit. There's so much you can do to stay relevant and stay good, and so many different weaknesses you can work on too. So, I try um, so what are th- what are some of the things that you like? Do you utilize like your own services essentially to stay healthy? Like, what are some things that you've found have been helpful for you or for some of the uh, runners that come in that that you see? Like, what are some of your tested and proven methods yeah so especially as a masters runner uh, the two things that master runners start to lack is definitely your testosterone levels start to go down as you get older so you want to do the right things to try and keep those up one of them is compounded heavy lifts is pretty Mm. important so and a little bit more of a protein based diet so that's good there Uh, and then definitely general strength stuff probably one of the number one issues I see with runners in the clinic is imbalances between the legs, especially a lot of glute med, a lot of that hip complex issues. So single legged activities, especially, you know, Bulgarian squat, step ups, those kind of things consistently are always really good. And master runners tend to get weak, especially in the calves. And that's where I've had issues the last couple of years is the calf strengthening. So I've added that a lot more calf strengthening in with the, you know, like eccentric and dropping in the heel and did some isometric holds and different things to try and strengthen that. I just don't know if I've had enough time to do that 
as I'm trying to do these huge hill runs and different <laughs> right. things that are so I'm, I'm in this balance of trying to strengthen things, but then also in the altitude to, room, yeah, <laughs> trying to jump up and 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 finish my season up too. So it may just be one of those years where it's like, okay, I learned this year, let's finish the season off, let's get back to some strengthening work, and then really prep for next year also. Uh, and I love that the strength training is a is a piece that you feel like is important. That's something we talked about um, a couple episodes ago. And the the hormonal response that it will elicit is is really big. And I feel like that's yeah. something that runners don't necessarily take advantage of when it comes to lifting and lifting heavy. Um, when you're grabbing like light weights and just doing a bunch of reps, you're, you're not going to get that the same way that you probably won't get it as you're out for uh, for a run. Um, well, how, how did you come into obstacle course racing? Like, how, like you've been kicking ass on the on the road and in cross. Like, what made you steer into this? You know, it was the Warrior Dash. So I tried, <laughs> I tried a Warrior Dash in 2010. Uh, just went out there just to see what it was all about, and I, I crushed it. And one of the funny stories was I was they took the fastest time of the day. And I ended up running the fastest time of the day, and they bring you up on the stage, and they're giving you—they gave me this huge steel helmet, and they filled it with beer. Nice. And they, had, they had me drink it, and then put it on my head. And then the guy was like, you know, announcing my name and all this stuff, and he's like, "You got to step forward a little bit. There's going to be pyrotechnics behind you." And this flames went off, and <laughs> what? like all this stuff, and I was like, "Okay, I'm sold. This is awesome." <laughs> you don't get that at the Fourth of July 5K. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. It, then it started going downhill from there. But um, the Warrior Dash did. But uh, yeah, so that went well, uh, and then I got into Battle Frog. I did a couple Battle Frogs, and that was way more. Warrior Dash and Battle Frog was way more runnable, and I did really well on those. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when Battle Frog came out to the West Coast, I won a couple of those races. And then, uh, and I was doing Spartan, you know, dabbling in it here and there. The Seattle Spartan, Ryan Kent and Chad Trammell would always come up, and Ian Hosick. So us four would always be kind of duking it out in those races. And then, um, 2017 2016 i that's when i got serious i'm like i i really enjoy this um just started doing a lot more of the strength work and trying to figure out how the the hardest thing with running is you work so hard at being as efficient as possible as a runner so i spent 30 years doing that right you know 25 years of just efficiency and how to run as efficient as possible and you know, don't get tired during the race until the end, right? And then when you get the obstacle course racing, it's like all of a sudden you go from you know being totally fine to blowing yourself up, and then trying to get back and into coming running. back. Yeah, like, so oh, that's not that bad. That's been the problem for the last you know year, two years, I think, is trying to transition your body into getting used to hitting that high heart rate, you know, going lactate, and then going right back into your fluid running again. So that's, you know, so it's been a transition and with Spartan, the technical aspect, that's the one thing I feel like I lacked a little bit is the technical running. Yeah. And and those are definitely the same kind of struggles that I ran into. And when it comes to the training in particular, like it's hard to get away from those like metrics that, you know, it's like, okay, like five thirties clip this. And if I can run this long for this fast, I know I'm in this kind of shape. And then all of a sudden, like in OCR, like you don't have those like translatable metrics so it just kind of becomes like a crapshoot. Like, I think I will be better at carrying this bucket if I do this kind of workout. Like, um, have you found anything really that you go to to help 
measure your your fitness and how it might translate to a race or um are you just trying to work on a bunch of different things at once and, and putting it together on race day yeah i mean i've had a pretty consistent training program i've done for the last year or two and you know it's, i train pretty much kind of like a marathoner would but switch it up into ocr a little bit so tuesday would be track workouts and that's another thing where masters really you, you lose that testosterone you lose strength and you lose speed so the track stuff has been really important over the last couple of years, but now I'm realizing that's what's been messing my calf up this year is I've had trouble with the track, but trying to keep that fast speed, sustained speed type workouts to kind of what help transition and keep your uh, neurology there and keep your efficiency there, that's always been good for being a master runner. But Tuesday track, and then Wednesdays I would come back and I'll do like an hour and a half on a treadmill, and every three to five minutes jump off and do exercises and get right back yeah. on the treadmill. So that's probably the one workout that's really, you know, tried to make it a little bit more uh, OCR, and then just some heavier lifting on a couple of days and the long hilly runs, just working on the hills and the climbing and all that stuff. So that's one thing I, I, uh, I think I'm getting better at. Um, but, you know, it's hard to say. And, and Spartan's tough because a Spartan sprint and then, like, Tahoe are two, you know, totally different things. Yeah. Like Tahoe's just going to be a huge trail race with some obstacles throughout. And it might not be the same as last year. That might be a different course. So, like, you can't even take it year over year. And be like, yeah. Well, like, two years ago, the course was 17 miles. You know, like, and it's not going to be yeah. that this year. So, it's like, was did I do better? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it, it's hard, it's hard to It's a little more tell. runner-friendly in Tahoe, which is nice. But if they, they move it to, like, West Virginia next year, and it's like, oh, shit, now we've got this crazy technical train you got to worry about. But then my hermetic levels would be appropriate for yeah. a sea level race. I'd be much happier. It's going out there yeah. and dying yeah, up the first level. It levels hill. the playing field a little bit more. It, it does, for sure. But I do like that it is runnable out there in Tahoe. Um, so what are you thinking? What are you thinking for the, for, um, is that all you got for the year? Is that going to finish up, um, your season for you? Uh, Tahoe. And then I I may roll into it depending on how, uh, my, my cast feeling. It's been a little iffy the last couple weeks, but if I can, I'll go back into cross country. We got, oh yeah, that's right. It's out this, it's out this way, right? It's right in uh, uh, Lehigh. Lehigh will be the U S club cross country championships. Yeah. So and our team has gotten our shot of like winning the title. So if we can get everyone back together and, and maintain, that would be awesome. Was NCAA cross at Lehigh at all when you were running? It was uh, in 96, 95, I think it was. Yeah, was it? Was, yeah. Just that one time? Uh, it might have been before that or maybe even after that. But I know I know that it was there that year because the – the story was is like it was my freshman year, my second race, and and uh, I had only run five k up until that point, and I only run two years of cross country. But but the point is, the story is, is that like it was my second race in college as a freshman, and they have they make it a ten k because it's pre nats. Oh, as oh, opposed it's so so Paul oh. Short that year was it was a ten k, and I'm being like what? Uh. <laughs> like I got to run two of these things now, like <laughs> as opposed that was to one tough course. Yeah, it was. It rolls. It rolls. It, it, yeah. It's deceiving. There's no really big hills, but it, it beats you up. So, you, did, were, did you guys come out to that? I mean, did you did you run? I mean, I'm assuming you ran that race, right? Paul Paul Short. I'm not Paul Short, but um, the Nationals that the year, Nationals at Lehigh. That year. Is that Division One? Yeah, yeah. No, we ran. Uh, we did. 
The year we got second was in Arkansas. The year no, the year we got fourth was in Arkansas, and then second was Iowa, and then the next year was Arizona. Hmm. Yeah. So I wonder if it was before or after that. I thought it was ninety five, but I could be I could be wrong what what year it was, but yeah, there was it's a uh, Yeah, ninety six I think was Arizona, then ninety five uh Iowa, then ninety four Arkansas. That that's what I think that when we were at cause yeah, maybe it was after that. It was Martin Kino won it in Arkansas. Yeah, that's right, Martin Kino, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's cool. You get to come back out, get another shot at the Goodman campus, Paul Short uh, um, venue there. And, and just one last thing. I'm just curious. Do you, do you find that the OCR stuff affects positively or negatively, like your cross-country type of races or the road races that you pop onto? Or have you really noticed you know, it's funny because I think I've actually run better when I started doing some of the OCR stuff. Uh, and I don't know if it's just because that being a master's runner, you lack, you start lacking that strength. Mm. And it's funny because I started lifting more and I started getting stronger. And I definitely could tell I look stronger, but I only maybe gain like one or two pounds. Like you right. don't gain that much weight. It's kind of – it's interesting that way. Um, but, yeah, I mean I've run really well. It's 20 – Two years ago, I ran really well, and I got second at the U.S. Club Cross, and I was 44 that year. And, wow, I mean, my nice. placements are crazy. It's like third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then second, and then fifth. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's something I'm going to be curious about is, like, if there was ever, like, a young runner, like, in their prime who started training this way, like, how well they could do on, like, the track or something like that. Like, if it would affect them in either way, positively or negatively. Um, as opposed to like the, just a traditional model of, of what they're currently doing. Like if they were to lift heavier weights or were to do some weird transition work, like would that help? And you know, these guys do, it's funny cause they do lift heavy. Like, you know, these pro athletes, they know like, you know, you want to stay in that short rep range, right? You mm-hmm. don't want to, you don't want to build too much muscle, but you want to really hit the neuro adaption on on like a trap bar is a huge lift that a lot of pros will end up doing. They'll do that, you know, three to five, four to five sets of that. And they, they know they'll get that power, that strength. They just, you know, they're definitely going to lack the grip strength and some of the technical right. skills. Um, and then that going in and out of obstacles is definitely where a lot of athletes, a lot of these runners, and that's what's keeping them out of the sport. That's, that's that I don't want to do <laughs> you know? it. But I'm thinking almost the other way. Like if they trained like OCR, but was, were still on the roads and doing track, like if they did like your hour 30 treadmill workout, like with transitions and with exercises in between it, like if that would positively affect their performance on like the track or something like that. I don't know if it would positively affect. I think they could maintain though. I yeah, think it wouldn't hurt. Could. Yeah, it would be interesting to see someone like VJ and how he, how good of a runner will he become doing this OCR type training. Right, because he's really not that good of a runner. Like he's not. Yeah, like, you know, I don't think he's like in the class of what you are as of a runner. Well, he's he's not running in college <laughs> usually. If right. you can get a scholarship like, and go to college, you would go. Uh, I think he was like probably like a fifteen forty guy or so, uh, which is which yeah. I is think I think better than I was I, in high school, but yeah. So he, he's good, and who knows where he could have gone with that. Um, I just don't think you'll see anybody run on the roads. Like uh, when I was talking to uh, like Woods, he, he he was saying like I guess you're you're kind of in the same boat as he is. Like you guys will both run the roads and or run on track, but I don't think many of these other guys are out there really doing any road stuff, checking in on their times or anything like that. So yeah, and I don't get too excited about. 
I mean, and that's why I guess I like cross country and OCR because I don't like going back and doing half marathon, five k. It's it's kind of depressing now <laughs> on, <laughs> on what I would run now compared compared to what I used to, and that's maybe why I kind of veer away from that a little bit. And that's why I like the OCR stuff, just doing trail runs and doing all that, and then you know, doing don't have to worry about those times just to run. Don't worry about the times. It's, yeah. it's all about competing. No, for and sure. And with OCR, I'm actually you know in OCR, I am up there you know, with the top 20, 30 athletes competing, you know, at the elite level. Yeah. I couldn't do that in cross country, you know? So right. I, the U S club cross, I wouldn't even try and jump into open race. That would be a nightmare. You know, I, the only thing I get top hundred in that race is how good, how fast those guys are. There's so many good runners out there. I was looking at those cause I was looking at your uh, results and I, I popped over to the open races and yeah, like the guys that are getting like 200, they're averaging like five tens for 10k yeah, yeah they're amazing <laughs> like, i mean that's it, yeah, probably the most competitive race in the you in the in the united states over the whole year is that u.s club cross yeah that'd be fun. Maybe, I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe i'll mix it up in there it's right up the road i can probably get i involved. did it i did it one year it was like in mobile alabama and, oh really yeah and they actually had like um i don't even know what you'd call them like 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 uh gates or like bales of hay you had to jump over oh, like nice. it was like legit cross country they and take those dream. out for the master runners. Some <laughs> <laughs> of guys getting hurt. Pop the um, I don't know if it was just like this one race, but it was. Uh, but yeah, it was. It was over, like it was legit. Like it was. It gets pretty, pretty heavy and pretty it's, deep. Yeah, and the top five to ten are usually like Olympians and stuff. Yeah, There's no, like it really was, yeah. good runners up there. So it's amazing that you you know you'd be able to compete against those guys. Um, well, very cool, man. Well, John, I want to hold you all night and. Uh, we got to get to bed. It's 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 late on on our our yeah, coast. So, um, well, dude, I really appreciate you popping on and sharing the knowledge. Um, for anybody that wants to, you know, follow you, follow your journey, or connect with you, or if there are people local to you, like where where's the best place that, for people to find you? Uh, Oregon Integrated Health is the medical clinic I work at, um, and I have an Instagram. It's Jay Howell DC or yeah, Jay Howell DC. I'm not on there. I, I try, but I'm not the best with the social media stuff. <laughs> You're doing fine. You're doing it's great. It's a struggle. It's a yeah. total struggle. <laughs> with the Spartan stuff, they're always trying to get you to post. I'm like, oh, God, I hate this. But Are you on the pro team? Yeah. yeah. This oh, yeah, is my so they, second, they... second year now, I think. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I mean, with those, with yeah, your performance, you definitely should be. Um, yeah, it'll be fun to see you out in Tahoe, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to stop by and see your practice. I mean, I would love to get back out there. I have a buddy in Bend, and uh, I'd love to come out there and see it. Maybe you could show me around. Yeah, let me know. Just uh, but that's uh, and if, you, and... if you guys, if you're ever in Florida, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll check. We'll check in after hurricane season. Yeah, you guys hold it down, board up the windows for us, and then we'll come check it out. Thanks for joining us, brother. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you.